the Balham to Tooting Beck Trail, a short round trip from station to station, taking in sights of interest along the way. Brought to you by the Neighbourhood Network and produced by the podcast company. We're about to take you on an historic journey from Balham to Tooting Beck Station and back again as we explore Balham High Road. This half-mile stretch of road is unique, home to the biggest block of flats in Europe, a protected pub and the only sewing machine museum in the world. Architecturally, it's a mix. You can see enough of the large old houses to imagine how it would have been back in the end of the 1880s. And following the expansion at the start of the 20th century, we began to see unique and novel buildings. There was a tram station, a cinema and a roller skating rink. During the Blitz, many properties were bombed and replaced in the 50s and 60s with newer buildings, and most recently the building of flats. A number of individual and independent shops and restaurants remain and reflect the diversity and unique character of this neighbourhood. Every site with a story to tell. So whether you're a visitor to the area, have recently moved in, or are a long-term resident, join us on the Ballam to Tooting Beck Trail. This podcast tells you all you need to know and is best used with the accompanying map, which can be picked up at local shops or the library. You're on the Ballam to Tooting Beck Trail. This is location one, Irene House. My name's Rosemary Harley, and I've lived in Ballam all my life, so... Um, I've got good memories of it. One of the strong factors now about Ballam, and some interesting new buildings have gone up over the years, and we've got a more diverse group of people living in Ballam, which is one of its principal strengths, I think. We're in Irene House, and particularly wanted to include this because it's a significant employer in this area and was an early example of a building that was built at the beginning of the welfare state which would have been in the late 1940s early 1950s i do know that the building was there in at least about 1955 because the school i used to go to next door st mary's i used to watch probably bowler hatted people walking alongside the playground into the building always wearing suits in those days So Irene House is a place where benefits were administered, the early national assistance and a number of other benefits as well, such as social fund payments. It's still open. Medical examinations are carried out here. But the reason why I was particularly interested in including it was because I used to work here from 1980, and I really enjoyed what I used to do um, and felt that I was playing an important role in... um, maintaining uh, and hopefully improving the welfare state. I just wanted to mention in connection with Irene House about the IRA bomb that exploded in 1974. I can remember hearing it. It was in a bin in the car park adjacent to the church. Uh, That is St Mary's Church next door. So it wasn't specifically designed to injure anyone and it did go off in the early hours of the morning. But it was a tremendous noise, and, and it didn't really do much damage, to my knowledge, to Irene House, but it did do some damage to the church. Fortunately, there's never been another incident like that since. You're on the Ballam to Tooting Beck Trail. This is location two, St Mary's and St John the Divine Church. This fine church is the oldest building on the walk. The church was originally known as Ballam Proprietary Chapel, built in 1808 and planned and financed mainly by members of the Clapham sect, 
a group of Church of England social reformers based in Clapham at the beginning of the 19th century. The membership included William Wilberforce, and as a whole, the sect was influential in the abolition of the slave trade. The nave walls from the original chapel still survive, as does the bell that we all hear tolling the hour. In 1855, the parish church of Balham, St Mary's, was born, and in 1903 the towers and domed baptistery were added. The merging of two parishes created St Mary's and St John the Divine Church in 1983. My name is the Reverend Eileen Serbert, and I'm assistant priest in this church, which is St Mary and St John the Divine, the parish church of Balham. I came to the church in 1967, and the priest in charge was the Reverend John Paul, and it was John who really started developing what went on at the church. People came to the church then, and if they didn't fit in, they were turned away before John came. So West Indians and Nigerians were literally turned away. John accepted everyone, and what's more, he made them and everybody feel welcome. So we did things like having Commonwealth lunches and social occasions, flags from the different countries. It was still the time when uh, Britain was part of the Commonwealth. Their flags were paraded in church and so on and so forth. So we went on from there. The social life continued. The only thing John didn't do was allow women to take clerical roles in church, shall I say. I used to read occasionally from the chancel but he always said that a woman's place was either on her knees praying or cleaning. <laughs> so when the next priest came, it was a much younger person, Theo, then he introduced women to the choir and had women administering the chalice. And one woman actually then did reader training, lay reader training in the Church of England. And so we gradually expanded. We still made everybody welcome, and everybody is still welcome in this church, no matter who they are or what they are. We like to think that we are a community church. After Theo left, uh, he was quite ill, so that he had to leave earlier than he would have liked. Then Dorothy came, and with Dorothy we continued expanding. Naturally, then women took a bigger role in the running of the church and the clerical work of the church and uh, that was when she encouraged me to become a priest. So uh, I did. Then we had Wilma. Wilma took the church even further forward. We looked at the neighborhood. We looked at what she could do with the shops and other institutions in Balham. We expanded the use of the church. So although we used to have various lets before, now we actually encourage people to come in and, and use the church. And the church is fully used for all manner of things. We like to see it as, yeah, the parish church, the centre of the Balham community. You're on the Balham to Tooting Beck Trail. This is location three, Duquesne Court. Okay, well, my name is Charles Jones. I've lived in Duquesne Court since 1989. Uh, I actually moved in the day after the Berlin Wall came down. Duquesne Court is almost certainly the largest single residential building in the country. We have 676 flats under one roof. 
It was built between 1936 and 1940 in two phases. The part of the building closest to the high road was built first. Uh, the part behind was built immediately afterwards. It followed on, really, as a single project. The building was designed by an architect, uh, George K. Green, and it's almost certainly the last building that he designed. He, he died sometime in the early 1940s. The gardens were all laid out by uh, a famous Japanese garden designer, Sayamon Kusumoto. The only garden in the building that bears any real resemblance to its original is the front courtyard on the right-hand side. Uh, that still has its pond, and you can, if you look carefully, see some of the uh, original planting. The other courtyards, sadly, have lost most of their features. When the building was built, all of the flats were for rent. Nobody bought a flat in the 1930s and 40s. Your rent would include things like constant hot water, central heating in the winter, the uniformed porters. We still have constant hot water. We still have heating all winter. Our porters don't wear quite as smart a uniform now as they would have done back in the 30s. There was a range of flats on offer in the building from small communal flats where you had a bed sitting room and you shared a bathroom and lavatory with one other tenant and the rents for those were 23 shillings a week which are a pound and 15 pence in modern money. In addition to the restaurant on the top floor of the building there was a table tennis room, a billiards and snooker room and a writing room all available for residents to use. The restaurant was dismantled in the late 50s uh, simply because it didn't make any money. And in the early 60s, that part of the building was converted into flats. When the building was first built, you would have to have an interview before you were allowed to rent a flat here. And you wouldn't then have a free pick of which particular flat you wanted. You would be shown which flat, or possibly a selection of two or three, that you would be allowed to rent. Many people describe the building as art deco, uh, although it's not really the best example of it. It is a good example of the, the 1930s modern style, uh, but if you go into the entrance foyer, that does have still some elements of art deco about it, two sweeping staircases uh, either side of the, the reception desk and circular columns with rather wonderful uplighters on them and interesting plastering on the ceiling but that really is about the only part of the building that has any serious Art Deco uh, elements to it. The building has survived since it was built almost unaltered on the outside, and that, I feel, makes it quite remarkable. It's partly because all of the plumbing is inside the building. There are no pipes running down the outside walls. They can't leak on the outside and damage the, the exterior of the building. The biggest difference probably between the building as you see it now and when it was built is that originally all the window, pane, uh, window frames would have been painted green, not white. But aside from that, what you see today is pretty much what was built in the 30s. At roof level on the Ballam Park roadside, there used to be large neon letters spelling out Duquesne Court. And I can remember seeing those from the train when I went through Ballam in about 1978. 
the name Duquesne Court comes from the Duquesne family who were landowners in this area. There are all sorts of urban myths attached to the building about uh, what it was, what it might have been, who'd lived here and, and so on. Some of the people who've claimed to live here most certainly did live here. Tommy Trinder lived here right up until the early 1960s. One of the other stories around the building is that Hitler wouldn't allow the Luftwaffe to bomb it because he wanted to live here or he wanted his officers to live here or some such story. The trouble with that story is that if you go up to Bloomsbury and look at Senate House, they will tell you the same story. And there are, in fact, quite a few buildings around London who will tell you the same story. The, the variation on that story is that the Luftwaffe didn't bomb it because they used it as a, as a reference point for uh, making their way around. That also doesn't carry a lot of water. The, the Luftwaffe were no better at aiming their bombs than the RAF. And if they hit something, that was good luck. And if they missed it, that was unfortunate. You're on the Balam to Tutingbeck Trail. This is location four, the Polish church. My name is Monica Wilson and I've lived locally for the last 17 years since I got married to my husband, Russell. I was born in Warsaw, Poland. We, we're standing outside the Polish parish Christ the King Church. So this beautiful, imposing Victorian building built in 1883 with its turrets and spires is a very well-known and used and popular Polish Roman Catholic church. The parish was originally founded by Father Stanisław Cynar um, in Clapham South in 1948 in the wake of the immigration of Poles into the UK after the Second World War. And um, a turning point in the history of this parish was the purchase of Hamilton House across the road from here, which uh, still remains a Polish parish community centre and is known as the White Eagle Club. But it, back in those days, it was um, commonly used for other purposes, for example, Sunday Mass and other religious celebrations. Later, this church was purchased from the former United Reformed Church and it was consecrated on the 2nd of July 1978 as Christ the King Church, Kościół Chrystusa Króla. Since 1991, um, Father Władysław Wyszowacki has been the parish priest here and the parish congregation is really incredibly large and flourishing, especially after 2004 when Poland joined the European Union. And especially at Easter, the congregation spill out from the doors. One of the Easter traditions is to bring a wicker basket filled with egg, sausage, salt and pepper, you name it. and to be blessed and then taken back home to be shared between family members. And the latest addition to this parish building is this beautiful statue standing just outside its entrance of St. John Paul II, which was a gift from the children who celebrated their first Holy Communion in May 2017, which was the centenary anniversary of the miracles of Fatima. And my own daughter was part of this group. You're on the Balham to Tootingbeck Trail. This is location five, Balham Barnets. I'm Lisa. And I'm Tim. And we are at Balham Barnets. We are opposite the Evelyn Day School. 
Well, I was um, one of Lisa's clients. I ended up asking her for a date, and um, the rest is history. We got married, and I've been with her ever since. For how many years is it now? 26 years. <laughs> I knew I wanted to be a hairdresser, always wanted to do hairdressing, and I needed a Saturday job, so um, I came here when I was 15, I was still at school, and just stayed here, and once I'd got my qualifications, just stayed. My boss at the time, um, it was called Neil Hair Fashions at the time, he retired in 2013, and that's when we took over, and it became Ballon Barnett's. I was made redundant from the post office, so I've come into the position as the salon junior, I'm the chief tea maker, hair washer, floor sweeper, appointment maker, anything, <laughs> anything about apart from being let loose with the system because we want to keep the few customers we've got. We, we've got a lot of the same customers that we had 30 years ago. They've been with us. We've all grown old together. But we do have a few more, a few more younger clients. Um, quite a few more long, younger ones have moved into the area because it's become quite trendy, whereas, you know, in the past it was quite a dodgy area to live in, you know, when I first came to Ballam. In that respect, it's become much more family orientated. I think, you know, they don't call it Nappy Valley for nothing. It feels like it sometimes. It's so younger. it's much, much younger, I would say, mm -hmm. yeah. With hairdressing, it's constantly changing anyway. You, you've got to move with the time. So things like Instagram and Pinterest are great ways of finding out what's on trend at the moment. So that's what, that's what I tend to do. As we've been here a long time with long-standing hairdressers, the shops around us have actually changed. We, we've lost our communal post office. A lot of people are very upset about that. We also used to have one of those ironmongers stores that was very much like the two Ronnies one. Four candles with all the boxes and shelves of little screws and nails on the wall. That has long since gone, I'm afraid. It all seems to be coffee shops, estate agents and um, hairdressers these days, to be honest with you. And we're still just hanging in there. But um, fortunately, we've got a loyal client base. But Balham is definitely changing. It's definitely getting younger. We all often say we watch the world go by, and we really do, but there was one particular day when we saw all the soldiers coming back. We all went outside and to cheer as they went by, and that was just really lovely because we didn't realise how much the community were behind the soldiers. And that was really nice to see everybody lining the streets because we, we had half an inkling that no one would come out because we kept saying to all our clients, they're coming, they're coming. And it was really nice to see everybody out there and, and cheering as they went by. It was, it was a really nice moment. Evelyn Day had made um, all the little children came out with Union Jack flags and were waving and cheering as the soldiers came, came by. It was incredibly emotional, actually, even thinking about it now. I can brings a lump to the throat because we're practically opposite the TA Territorial Army building. Bannum has it's been there forever in the day, the T Territorial Army building, and that day was very, very moving, watching them come by. You're on the Ballum to Tooting Back Trail. This is location six, new housing development. Oh, hello, my name's Rosemary Harley, and I've lived in Ballum all my life, so I know it pretty well. The site here, between Upper Tootin Park and Marius Road has a very interesting pass. It used to be the site of the Ballam Horse Tram Depot, which was built by the London Tramline Company during the 1880s and which could accommodate 30 trams and their horses. It was described as a, a rambling place that was situated between these two roads. The site was cleared by 1908 and in 1909, a skating rink opened called the Empress. This was very popular with young people, but it closed after a few years when the fad kind of died out. Eaton's Garage later opened on the huge site. As well as private cars, many coaches used the site, including Orange Luxury, that used to take people to interesting places. 
On the other side of the Marius Road, on the very, very edge of the site, there stood what was once Balham's oddest and most anachronistic building. It was the Temperance Billiard Hall, topped with cream-coloured dome and embellished with green tiles. There is a similar one in Clapham and several other elsewhere, which are now all fortunately listed. But unfortunately, this one was pulled down before listing became mandatory. The temperance billiard halls were introduced in Victorian Edwardian times to encourage the working man to forgo the local pub and the evils of drink and play a decent and safe game of billiards instead. There is one other thing I would like to say about Ballam High Road, which and it would have passed along here, past the tram shed. And that was two particularly significant events of the early 20th century were the funeral procession of Dan Leno in 1904 along Ballam High Road, which took four hours to pass and was attended by thousands of people because he was a well-loved music hall and comedian star. He actually lived in Clapham for a time. The other was the inauguration on the 15th of May 1903 of the new tram service, which again passed along the high road along here to Tootin. The new tram was ridden by the Prince of Wales, later King George V, and maybe he had a hand in steering it as well. You're on the Ballam to Tooting Beck Trail. This is location 7, Upper Tooting Methodist Church. The original church was opened in 1904. Alfred Heaver, who built the Heaver Estate, was a prominent member of the church. During World War II, on July the 12th, 1944, a flying bomb hit the factory. Six people were killed and the church was destroyed. The current building was opened in 1957. On the front high window, you'll notice a mosaic showing the ruins of the old church with the words, I shall arise. You can also see a large white cross on the roof, white by day, shining red at night. Red and white are the colours of Methodism. You're on the Ballam to Tooting Beck Trail. This is location 8, Wimbledon Sewing Machine Shop and Museum. I'm Lauren Rose and I'm at Wimbledon Sewing Machine Company. I've worked here for five years. My role in the museum is museum supervisor. I'm the only person that works there, so I supervise myself. I'm the best member of staff I've ever had, always on time. So the museum was started in 2000 when Ray acquired the Queen Victoria sewing machine. It was a machine commissioned by Queen Victoria for her eldest daughter's wedding also Victoria, in 1865. So Ray decided it would be best to showcase it in a museum surrounding. So he had some cabinets specially made to showcase it. And that's where we started our museum. Ray has been in the business since he was seven years old when he started the company with his father in 1946. So he'd already had a collection of pretty decent sewing machines when he started. And over the years, he's just collected more and more. So. I believe it's the only one of its kind in the world. I'll guarantee you there'll be other sewing machine collectors that say theirs is the only one of a kind, but ours actually is. We have at least two extremely, extremely rare machines that so many other collectors cover and they just can't have because we've got them. Yeah. <laughs> we do have a sewing machine 
that was signed by Boy George. He, he found out a few years ago that we have a machine that is the exact same make and model as an Alpha that his mother used to use to sew a lot of his clothes as a child and a lot of his costumes as an adult when he started becoming famous. And when they were filming the story of his life, he rang Ray and asked him if it would be possible to do a bit of filming in his museum. And once he realised who he was, he phoned him back and said, of course you can, Mr George, provided you sign the sewing machine for us and you let us have a photograph. So in our museum, you will see our Boy George machine with a photograph of Boy George. We also have one of the first ever production sewing machines. That's the other super rare one that we have. We have a Thermonier. It's, it was made by a gentleman called Bartholomew Thermonier. He started the prototypes in 1829 and he went into production in 1839. The machine was found in a basement in Argentina by an Argentinian couple. We have no idea how it got over there. And they didn't realise what they had. They put it up for auction. Ray was just like, we need this machine. It took four years of negotiations, but <laughs> Ray being Ray, we got the machine. <laughs> so now it is the rarest machine that we have. The original shop started in 1946, just after the Second World War, when it was a bit more profitable to make your clothes than it was to buy them. Ray's father decided he wanted to, uh, having lost a lot of his property in the Second World War, he decided he wanted to start his own business again from scratch. So him and Ray would go out from the crack of dawn collecting sewing machines on foot strapped every which way around them to get them back and they'd have signs outside the front of their shop saying 500 machines wanted and they would get those 500 machines they'd refurbish them and sell them on and back then the original shop was called T.A. Rushton's and if you go to the museum we actually have a replica of the original shop front in there and we have a photograph of the original shop front with Ray's father in the doorway and Ray when he was about eight years old in short pants which makes me feel a lot better talking to my big boss's father I tell you that um, and eventually they had to upsize and move slightly further down the road to South Wimbledon which is when they became Wimbledon Sewing Machine Company when Ray's father passed away in 1974 Ray and his brother Ian split off, so Ian stayed in South Wimbledon and Ray came to Tooting, which is why we are Wimbledon Sewing Machines, Tooting Beck, Ballam High Road. A majority of the time when I'm working here I work in the Sewing and Craft Superstore side of the shop, which from the outside, I'm not going to lie, it does look like a warehouse. On the odd occasion we do have random mannequin arms and legs. Don't let it put you off because as many of our customers will tell you, our shop is an Aladdin's cave. I do believe we should be called Wimbledon Sewing Machine Company, AKA Aladdin's Cave. If you're a crafter or a sewer, knitter, cake maker, just come in. We have got absolutely everything you need to make anything you could imagine. Great for kids crafts, jewelry making. Upstairs we have bridal and evening wear and soft furnishings, so upholstery fabrics and curtain fabrics, anything you need for crafting. The Sewing Machine Museum is on the Sewing Machine Repair side, which is closer to the station. You wouldn't know it when you go in, but there's a lovely staircase on the right-hand side that's usually locked up until the first Saturday of every month between 2 and 5, which is when we're, the museum is open. Just up those stairs. You're on the Ballam to Tootingbeck Trail. This is location 9, the Wheat Sheaf Pub. I'm Dan Watkins, I'm a um, local resident in Tootingbeck, live around here for about 20 years. Uh, by day I'm actually an entrepreneur, uh, working in the sort of legal technology sector. Yes, in terms of sitting in this great pub, the Wheat Sheaf, uh, most known for chairing the Save the Wheat Sheaf campaign uh, between 2013 and uh, I think it was late 2015 when eventually we saved it for good. The pub had been very popular for a few years leading up to 2013 when uh, we suddenly heard 
uh, it was at risk. And um, myself and a number of other people came together, kind of led the community, got a huge amount of uh, sort of buy-in to our campaign, which we uh, eventually presented to the authorities to, to protect this great pub, which was, which was under threat. So, I mean, the Wheat Sheaf, like a lot of pubs in London, is one of those uh, sites where it faces that threat. You know, high property prices, very competitive high street conditions mean that a lot of people who own pubs think, I can make more money from selling it and turning it into something else, flats or a shop, than maybe running it as a pub anymore. And, and that was a problem here. So the owners were looking to pass it over to Tesco. So when we heard of that in the summer of 2013, myself and a few others, we came together, started uh, online petitions, making sure that everyone knew the pub was at threat and really sort of put forward their case for why it was a great pub and to take that to the council who basically decide whether you can get planning protection for, uh, for things like pubs. Our, our petition to, to have the pub listed as an asset of community value was, was successful. So the next thing we had to do was to look at getting its planning use protected so that they couldn't change it to a, a shop use. So we had to get what's called an Article 4 direction. And that took a lot of meetings at Town Hall. Uh, by this time, the big online petition we'd done had swelled to almost 10,000 people, believe it or not. We listed all of the different community groups that came here. We were going around the pub asking people, you know, who comes here? What do you do here? We had everything from sports groups to um, you know, local, local hospitals and health groups who came here to meet. Uh, we found out that the Wheat Sheaf was the site of South London's annual chili eating contest there isn't a huge amount of community space in London so we needed to protect it and with that kind of huge weight of evidence we went to Wandsworth Council and fair play to them and they did give this article 4 status and from that stage onwards we knew that whoever operated the site it would be a pub so what was wonderful after that was across London and many other property hotspots in the in uh, the UK pubs have been closing at a rate of knots on the back of what Wandsworth did here we've had other councils in the country also protect with Article 4 directions, well, they're community pubs. So we're delighted to have this pub on our doorsteps and tooting, but we're, we're really pleased. A sort of positive unintended consequences was what it meant for other parts of the country now, which are following our lead. So uh, it's exciting times. You're on the Ballum to Tooting Beck Trail. This is location 10, Tooting Beck Station. Hello, I'm Simon Cook. I'm the area manager for uh, Ballam and Tootingbeck stations on the Northern Line. Tootingbeck station opened on the 13th of September 1926 as part of the Central and South London Railways extension to Malden, which ran from Clapham Common to Malden stations. The interesting thing about Tootingbeck when you go into the station is, is that the where the ticket office was and where you'll find the ticket machines now, that didn't exist when the station was built. There would be what they called perimeter offices in the middle of the ticket hall. And the perimeter offices were the were the old-fashioned glass ticket booths that you queue up at. So the ticket hall itself was was much bigger. During the war, Tooting Beck was a, like a lot of underground stations, a, a shelter. They used to hold up to uh, 800 people at Tooting Beck, and they would be queuing from around about 2:30 in the afternoon, and they would pay to get in. And there was a report in 1940, September 1940, before the tragedy at Ballam. Um, that they did a, a big thing about shelters and the conditions of the shelters across the whole of the underground. And um, Tootingbeck was, as I say, 800 people. They were queuing from half two. And the thing that they actually came back with a report was the station was adequate with regards to toilet facilities. But they recommended that season tickets be introduced for shelterers. Uh, so to as avoid for general customers using the stations so not to have to queue up at the ticket windows because they would charge to, to shelter. It was opened as Trinity Road in 1926. 
And after the war in 1950, a lot of stations changed their names. And on the 1st of October 1950, the station became, as we know it today, Tootinbeck. Our footfall at Tootinbeck, I mean, based on the most recent figures we have, we, we have 7.92 million people per year. That's entrance and exit figures through Tootinbeck. So for a small station, which is one of the quieter stations actually on the extension branch, um, it's still pretty busy. And if you're there any morning or in the evening, you'll see that we get a lot of foot traffic from local buses and traditionally the buses will bring people into the underground from outlying suburbs and then they'll get off on the train and that's basically what the underground's always been it's not just for the local people they'll come from the the locale and the environs and then they'll get on the trains with us but uh, yeah a lot a lot of people using tuning back and it's only going up with the building around in the local area you're on the ballam to tooting back trail this is location 11 st anselm's church and the bombing my name's Nick Dunn. I've lived in Tootingbeck since 1984. We're here at uh, St Anselm's Church, uh, where I've been a parishioner since uh, 1989. It's on a very historic site. We are beside the great Roman road that ran from uh, London Bridge down to Chichester. It's the A24, it's Balham High Road. And so we're on a, a very important historic crossroads for London. The Catholic Church was founded in 1909 when a small group of Catholics from Balham bought the old Wesleyan chapel that was on this site. The Methodist community had uh, built a new church just back along Balham High Road in 1904 and so that property was, was vacant. Uh, it was in a very poor state of repair and uh, in 1932 1933 it was rebuilt to the church that we see today. The church took its name after St Anselm who was the second Archbishop of Canterbury uh, after the Norman invasion, so the second Norman um, Archbishop of Canterbury. He came from the Abbey of Beck in Normandy and they took over the lands in this area after the Norman conquest, hence this area is known as Tooting Beck. There was a small community of monks from Beck in the neighbourhood, probably just off uh, Stain Street, not far from here. And it's very, very likely that Anselm would have walked uh, along Stain Street to visit this community in his visits uh, to England and to this part of London. We also know that another saint, Thomas Beckett, who was Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1100s, would have travelled past these doors as a boy on his way to uh, Merton Abbey, where he studied. And so, again, a very historic route in 2014, I was part of a project which interviewed and researched parishioners who had uh, died in the First and Second World Wars. It resulted in a book, uh, Parish in Wartime, uh, in which we managed to capture lots of fascinating stories. Uh, that involved interviewing parishioners whose relatives we were going to feature on the War Memorial, but also parishioners who'd lived in the area during the Second World War when bombs were falling. Two of the most significant incidents in this area occurred around Drakefield Road, which you'll have passed on your walk. We interviewed Phil Plummer, who lived all her life in a house on 8 Drakefield Road, and she described the day that a V1 bomb fell across the road from her, where you see a little group of 1960s houses now. That's where the, the V1 fell. She was 12 at the time. They heard the engine of the V1 cut out and they knew that that was a signal to take shelter quickly because as soon as the engine cut out the bomb dropped almost vertically. So her and her brother and a friend sheltered in the cellar 
A bomb fell. It blew up out the front of their house. The front door was blown right through the house towards the garden. When they emerged, they looked outside and could see people running, blood covered in blood, uh, debris everywhere. They noticed two elderly ladies in particular who were wandering dazed and confused amongst the rubble of the houses opposite. These two young children, Phyllis and her friend, 12 years of age, they went out and guided the two ladies to an air raid shelter which was at the bottom of uh, Drakeford Road, just at the junction of Ballam High Road. They settled the, the, the two elderly ladies there and then said to each other, well, what else should we do? I know, said Phyllis, what we'll do is we'll make tea. So they went back home, laid up a tray of tea, milk, sugar, cups, and then took this tray down to the air raid shelter where the two ladies were and others were. And just the sight of two 12-year-old children carrying a laden tray of, of tea, uh, milk, sugar. For me, that's, that's a remarkable image of bravery and stoicism in the face of great adversity. The other thing I never noticed until Phyllis pointed it out was if you look very carefully on the red brick at the side of the house on Drakefield Road, you'll see the faded, two rows of faded numbers, six numbers altogether, G64 and 484 below it. Now these, Phyllis told me, are the registration numbers of the air raid shelter that she and her friend brought the tea and uh, milk to. You're on the Ballam to Tootingback Trail. This is location 12, Ritherden Road, Tootingback Common. Follow any of these roads on the right up to Tootingbeck Common. These roads take you through the Hever Estate, imposing buildings built by Alfred Hever at the start of the 1880s. He specialised in making sure all the houses were slightly different. This expansion of housing followed the opening of the station in Ballam in 1856. During the Second World War, all the iron railings from houses in the Hever Estate were removed with the stated intention of melting them down to use in making fighter aircraft or weapons. But in fact they were never used and the truth of the railing's final destination remains elusive. As part of the war effort, Tootingbeck Common was used as allotments, with pigs living there too. Now it's an extremely well-used green public space for recreation and sports and is home to a wide variety of wildlife, as you'll hear. Hello, I'm Colm O'Flynn and I live about 200 metres from the common. Um, I'm a trained ecologist, so I have an interest in most of the things on the common. I've just approached the common from Huron Road and I'm standing in front of the football fields and already I've seen a number of birds that you wouldn't expect to see many of in London, so I've seen field fairs which have come from Scandinavia for the winter. In the summer we'd be able to hear song thrushes and mistle thrushes and robins. In the background we can hear parakeets, which are now ubiquitous on the common and only arrived about 10 years ago, uh, but now have really taken over big sections of the woodlands. We're standing in front of this wonderful tree on the corner of Dr. Johnson Avenue and Hilbury Road. It's a Malus japonica. It was planted there. That's a Japanese crab apple. And you can hear the parakeets flying and over. In the winter, they gorge themselves on the tiny, beautiful 
orangey red crab apples that adorn it in abundance but in the spring it is covered in the most sumptuously scented flowers in April in very early in the morning at I've come out at 6am and you can smell it from metres away and it is a joy. Dr Johnson Avenue itself, which, which runs from Manville Road onto Tooting Beck Road and sort of transects the common, has the most wonderful avenue of old oak trees. Rumour has it that there was a row of trees there when Elizabeth I travelled this route. It's very hard to authenticate these stories, but they're very good anyway. But the trees themselves are fantastic. Between them and the road underground, the River Falcon rises and flows from here all the way through Clapham Junction, down Falcon Road and into the Thames. You're on the Ballam to Tooting Beck Trail. This is location 13. Territorial Army Centre. So here we are outside the Ballam Territorial Army Centre, otherwise known as Fusilier House, which was built in 1930. This is the headquarters of the C Company of the City of London Fusiliers and an infantry corps of the London Regiment. The company was founded in 1906 and they saw a specific service in World War I and also in Afghanistan. Fortunately, they did all return and there was in fact a well-organised and widely watched parade along Ballam High Road on their return. The Territorial Army, it's not really called that anymore. It's it quite a complex history. So we still call it Fusilier House, Territorial Army Centre, but we don't actually call them the TA anymore because they're more part of the regular army. You're on the Ballam to Tooting Beck Trail. This is location 14. Hamilton House, White Eagle Club. Well, my name is Colin Ashton. I'm one of the managers here. The company's called Polish Club Limited. I was born and bred in Badham. My first job was in Badham. I joined the Army Reserve in Badham. And I worked up at Stockwell Bus Garage as a tyre fitter. Many of the soldiers from next door used to come to the Polish Club. And we now have what's called the, uh, the Fusiliers Corner where a lot of my mates and uh, old-timers come and have a, have a few drinks with us on a Friday night or whenever they feel like it. The building actually has got a bit of history to it. It was built in 1825. There is a rumour that the building is named after Lady Hamilton. It's a Grade two listed building, which means that anything that we have done to the original structure of the building has to go through English heritage. We have to inform the local fire brigade and any other parties that are involved being a listed building. There's been various owners through the ages trying to find who, what, when and how between 1825 and towards the end of the Second World War is actually quite hard. The only thing that we've managed to find out was it had kind of like, shall we say, just a bit of a chequered history from after the Second World War, where it was basically used as a casino of sorts. And then the local priest had the idea that they needed a community centre for the Polish people who were here and lived in the area after the Second World War. So for South London, this one is actually the largest one in South London. It's got a ballroom, it's, it's got a restaurant that holds 120 people. It's an absolute rabbit warren, this place, and it would take you a good, I would say, hour and a half to two hours of brisk walk to actually get round the whole place and visit every warren that's actually here. 
the club itself, when it was first bought uh, in 1969, was opened as the Polish Community Centre and was used as a community centre. In 2005, it was leased out as a business, being run then as Polish Club Limited, but it still remains the Polish Cultural Centre for South London. That doesn't change. Still keeping the traditional Polish values of, of music and food and the welcoming hospitality. The, the club itself is, is at the forefront of a larger premises, which is at the back, which is like a residential home for the elderly Polish people, and their families can come and visit. They have a warden there, so they're well looked after, and the, the priest lives just on the road behind the actual residence itself. On a Sunday, we have the church, which has its various masses, the people come from there, they come over here and before the restaurants open they can go into the main hall where they have tea, coffee, freshly made cakes on the premises, sometimes there's bread for them to buy from one of the Polish bakeries and then they come in to here from 11.30 12 o'clock where they have a full spread of traditional Polish food a la carte or from the buffet. You're on the Ballam to Tootingbeck Trail. This is location 15, Spiritualist Church. Modern spiritualism was founded in 1848. Robert Owen, the socialist reformer and co-founder of the Cooperative Society, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, were both believers. The Ballam spiritualists started in 1937 in a hall on Bedford Hill, but this was destroyed by a flying bomb. They moved into their current premises in 1957 and bought it for £4,500. At that time they had 300 members. From the outside it looks like a small hall, but it has a number of rooms, a large hall for services, a kitchen and a small garden at the back. It is run by a committee of volunteers. You're on the Ballam to Tootingbeck Trail. This is location 16, Robbie's Photographic Shop and Ballam Boulevard. Well, my name's Ron. My full name is Ron McRobbie. I'm the director of Robbie's Photographics. We recently moved from our premises in Rutherden Road to our new premises in the Boulevard on Ballam High Road. This is a little bit confusing to people because the Boulevard is actually on Ballam High Road. But I do have to point out to people, our official address is Nine the Boulevard. I then add Ballam High Road. And I usually add opposite Duquesne Court, and I usually add opposite the Polish Club. I came to Ballam in 1984. I did a completely different job. I was the operations director of a big margarine manufacturer. At the age of 58, I was given the opportunity to retire, and photography has always been my hobby. It's always been my passion. So when I left the margarine business, I saw a wonderful opportunity to turn my hobby into retirement business. Sounds very simple. In actual fact, it's been very complicated because I've had to endure tremendous advances in technological change because I was brought up in film photography and uh, we still do some film photography, but in reality, we've had to keep a pace with the digital age, which is changing every month. Uh, this has required us to invest heavily in digital printing machines, digital cameras and so forth, but it's a joy. 
and I love it. And because of the digitization, we can literally offer thousands of products now. So we, we essentially have three main activities at Robbie's. We take photographs and we are sitting in our photographic studio. We print photographs and we frame photographs. Also, of course, we are diversified into using our studio to photograph people's art and then we can do limited edition prints for them. So we're kind of moving to a more kind of arty world. Um, the joy for me is I, I came to Balm in 1984 and in those days Balm was pretty rough and pretty tough. Um, but it was cheap and affordable and I have lived here since and seen Balham grow to be more affluent but I think it's become a lot more friendly and I think it's one of the friendliest parts of South London if not London. Uh, lots of people know each other probably through the schools and the children but also we are very friendly with lots and lots of people who come to Robbie's. This site used to be Hurley's and Harley's was a very, very long established stationery business and people still coming in wanting to buy envelopes. And they get quite upset when we politely point out we don't do envelopes anymore. <laughs> so here we are in Robbie's and we're, we're here hopefully for another 10 years. Um, hopefully I can survive all that. But Robbie's has kept me young because I'm now 70 years old and, and, and loving it. You're on the Ballam to Tooting Beck Trail. This is location 17, Ballam Station. Just before the railway bridge where the Travelodge now stands was the Palladium Cinema, opened in 1912. It was described as swish and used to show three different films a week, which was rare at the time. As you continue under the bridge, you'll reach the station. This railway line was not only crucial to the expansion of Ballam, but it was here that the most famous historical event took place, the bombing of the station and the subsequent loss of life. The original line was opened in 1855 as the West End and Crystal Palace Railway to take people to the Crystal Palace Exhibition Centre when it was moved from Hyde Park. The first Ballam station opened on November the 1st, 1856. This was a small wooden halt on the other side of the main road. The present station was opened six years later, complete with a station master's house, which can still be seen on Ballam Station Road. Hi, I'm Simon Cook. I'm the area manager for Ballam Station, and that includes Tootingbeck as well. Ballam opened as part of the Central and South London Railways extension to Malden, which ran from Clapham Common to Malden. Ballam, interestedly, um, opened late in 1926. It didn't open until the 6th of December. And the reason it didn't open until the December was they had issues with the mains that run along Ballam High Road and all the way down to Tootingbeck and Broadway. Interesting fact about the Central and South London Railway it was called by Lord Ashfield at the time the, the Test Tube because the Central and South London Railway, the extension, was um, actually a test to um, see whether it would be a viable option to then extend other areas of the underground network. And they gave away 30,000 free tickets on its opening to get people to travel on this part of the line. The novelty value was immense. And then we come up to the Second World War and Ballam, like a lot of other stations, was used as a shelter. We could take 750 people here. As Tooting Beck Station, the ticket hall at Ballam was a lot bigger where you see where the machines are and where the ticket office was. That 
building within the footprint didn't exist. It was a lot bigger and we had precimeter glass offices, ticket booths in the middle of the ticket hall. The other interesting thing about Ballum is where you walk through the interchange gate between National Rail and the top of our staircase, there is a coffee shop there. And the coffee shop above the window, it's boarded up now, but rumour has it is that there is actually a glass freeze of Ballum High Road and the shops. I understand it, it may be still there, but I'm not going to go around with a crowbar, unfortunately, although I would love to. And then we, we fast forward to the Blitz and the events that happened on the 14th of October, 1940. So air sirens would have gone, people would have been sheltering. Records say over 500 people were in here at the time on the 14th of October. And at two minutes past eight, the German raid dropped a 1,400 kilo semi-armour-piercing bomb and it pierced the road right outside the British Heart Foundation, which you can see went through the road and being armour piercing, it hit the first piece of quotes armour that it came in contact with, which was the beam of the cross passage downstairs on the northbound platform. Impact caused the bomb to explode. It brought down a number of tunnel rings on the northbound platform. So when you're at the front of the northbound platform where the train comes in, there's a, a cross passage there, which is actually a switch room now. It hit right there. So there was water pouring in. There was, um, it brought down the shop fronts into the crater. It was 20 foot deep. The railway sits around about 26 foot down. The station master had his office at the very end of the northbound platform. And actually, if you look on the northbound platform at the end, you can see the outlining of where the room used to be. Um, that was Mr. John Rundle. He was deemed a hero and he managed to stay on the phone and get vital information his phone line was still working get vital information to his control center telling him what had happened and just giving you know up to the minute stuff and he drowned he drowned in the um with the water and obviously the mains and, and gas as well there were 66 people killed they couldn't get out because the watertight doors that featured downstairs were blocked because the whole station actually shifted interestingly enough we suffer with water seepage problems to this day because the whole station kind of rocked on its foundations. The line itself flooded as far north as Clapham South and as far south as Tooting Beck, or Trinity Road as it was called then. They were picking up blinds, doors, window frames at Tooting Beck. They were trying to come down in a boat down the tunnel from Clapham South. I mean, can you believe it? You're, you're 26 feet underground and you're actually in a boat trying to get down here, but obviously the way was blocked. There was the bus that fell into the crater as well. I did research on this two years ago. They actually didn't know who the four members of staff were here, so it was really pleasing for me to actually be the one that found the names of the four members of London Transport staff that lost their lives here. It was actually quite emotional to find them and match them up with the casualty list and our own records from our archives. I joined Ballum um, from elsewhere in the organisation in 2015 and it was one of my things to get the tin plaque replaced because I didn't feel it was appropriate for what happened here. Basically it says exactly the same as the, the tin plaque said but it means so much more, it's bigger, it's it's there for people to see. I was really proud and very emotional when it, when they revealed it. It was better than I ever thought it would be so I was really chuffed with that. According to my staff that worked here in the 1980s, this station was a bit uh, a den of iniquity in the 80s. The reputation that the area had at the time compared to now when it's thriving and it's a lovely place to be, but it, was, it, it wasn't a very nice place at the time. Last year, we had 14.64 million people in and out, exit and entry here. 
If you're here on a Monday morning, it feels like they all come through at once, all 14 million. You have to be really on the ball. It's a good place to work. We've got some good staff here and some really nice regular customers that come through. And that's not just the people of Ballam, it's people that come from outside to join us as well. So there you go, that's a little bit about Ballam. You're on the Ballam to Tooting Back Trail. A final word with the Mayor of Ballam, Arthur Smith. I'm Arthur Smith, a resident of Duquesne Court in Ballam on Ballam High Road. I've been here for 33 years, which is quite a long time, Uh, although not as long as it's been open. I'm standing here now on the seventh floor on a very clear day and you do get the most extraordinary view of the whole of central London. You can uh, can see right over across to Primrose Hill and then looking across there's a post office tower and then there's all the, the city and Canary Wharf, all the little projections into the sky and the Shard, which is the tallest building in London. I love living here. Partly it's the 24-hour porterage. If you've staggered in drunk, as I used to in the old days, at 3 o'clock in the morning, you've lost your key, you can always get in. You you don't have to wander down the post office to pick up a parcel, and they're endlessly available and polite. And there's a lovely grand 1930s art deco foyer, and the whole building has a... A sort of uh, elegance about it. Me and my partner describe it as the old lady with her large welcoming arms. (laughs) I've loved Ballam ever since I I came here. And it was actually, it was always a bit of a joke. That's one of the things I liked about Ballam in South London, which of course uh, is endlessly flicking the V's at North London. Uh, And Ballam had its own catchphrase. Pretty much the only place in the world I can think of, well so it's New York, New York, so good they named it twice, that's the only other one. Balham has the catchphrase, Balham, Gateway to the South, which was a very funny uh, little film, which is still on YouTube I think, with Peter Sellers in it, whatnot, written by Muir and Norden. And even now, you know, if you jump in a taxi and say take us to Balham, they'll say, oh yeah, Gateway to the South. I'm of the opinion they should build a big sign up over it, <laughs> a big arch saying Balham Gateway to the South, because it was a bit of a disreputable place. I mean, it's not been a lot of people here for that long. It was hardly more than a few houses and fields 100 years ago. We call it Hipster Street up further up there, where there's all now the groovy bakeries and whatnot, and there's great restaurants, there's... Um, There's Sainsbury's Car Park if you want to have a big demonstration. And that's where I proclaim myself the uh, mayor of Ballam. Uh, Nightmare, I don't do days. And I think if you Googled uh, mayor of Ballam, I suspect my name would come up. Uh, And look, you can look across, there's lots of schools around there. There's a very mixed community around in Ballam. You've got people of every race, there's young, old. it's It's a very amiable place. There's nothing sensational about Ballam, really, except that it is the finest place on earth. And I'm going to build a wall around Ballam, and who's going to pay for it? Clapham! <laughs> <laughs> the Ballam to Tooting Back Trail, brought to you by Neighbourhood Network, SW12 and SW17, and produced by the podcast company, with thanks to all contributors. For more information, see the accompanying Ballam to Tooting Back Trail map available from local shops and the library 
or visit Neighbourhood Network's website, neighbourhoodnetworksw17.org.uk.